Our scripture reading this afternoon is from John chapter 5. We'll be reading verses 1 through 9, and then we will read the first 10 verses of chapter 3 in the book of Acts. So first, John 5, verses 1 through 9. We read these two portions because they are parallel miracles of the Lord Jesus and then of the Lord Jesus through disciples healing a lame man. So John 5, beginning in verse 1. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is at Jerusalem by the sheep market a pool, which is called in the Hebrew tongue Bethesda, having five porches. In these lay a great multitude of impotent folk, of blind, halt, withered, waiting for the moving of the water. For an angel went down at a certain season into the pool and troubled the water. Whosoever then first, after the troubling of the water, stepped in was made whole of whatsoever disease he had. And a certain man was there which had an infirmity thirty-eight years. When Jesus saw him lie and knew that he had been now a long time in that case, he saith unto him, Wilt thou be made whole? The impotent man answered him, Sir, I have no man when the water is troubled to put me into the pool. But while I am coming, another steps down before me. Jesus said unto him, Rise, take up thy bed. And walk. And immediately the man was made whole, and took up his bed and walked. And on the same day was the Sabbath. And now we turn to the book of Acts, chapter 3, beginning in verse 1, first 10 verses. Acts 3, verse 1, we continue reading in God's holy word. Now Peter and John went up together into the temple, and at the hour of prayer, being the ninth hour, and a certain man, lame from his mother's womb, was carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple, which is called Beautiful, to ask alms of them that entered into the temple, who, seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, asked an alms. And Peter, fastening his eyes upon him with John, said, Look on us. And he gave heed unto them, expecting to receive something of them. Then Peter said, Silver and gold have I none, but such as I have give I thee. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and lifted him up. And immediately his feet and ankle bones received strength. And he leaping up stood and walked and entered with them into the temple, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God. And they knew that it was he which sat for alms at the beautiful gate. Of the temple, and they were filled with wonder and amazement 
at that which had happened unto him. Amen. May God bless the reading of his own word. And now we sing together in response to God's word. For our message where we see the healing of the lame man. We, we have looked at this passage in the past um, as I have preached through some portions of Acts. But if, if you may remember, the, the miracle itself was more like an introduction in the last sermon that I preached from Acts 3. And we went directly to the sermon that Peter preached following this miracle. And today we want to look specifically at the miracle itself. There is, of course, a, a miracle, a, a sermon in the, these very verses about the miracle in verses 1 through 10, where we see the healing of this lame man. In our first point, we will be considering persevering in prayer. This connects what we saw in Acts 2 with Acts 3. Um, the topic of prayer, there, there's a note that's very important to consider in our first point regarding prayer. Secondly, we'll be looking at this theme, giving what you have. When Peter sees this man in need, he gives what he has. There are things he doesn't have. It's even what that man wanted, but he gave what that man needed. And then thirdly, the, the com- putting together Christ and compassion. This is what's at work here. The Lord Jesus is at work, and he is showing his compassion still today. So first of all, persevering in prayer, then secondly, giving what you have, and then Christ and compassion. Well, there are many firsts in the book of Acts. It is a book of beginnings. In many ways, like Genesis, a book of beginnings, there is the first family, and then there is the first sin, sadly. Then there is um, the first death, etc., Well, in Acts, there is the first in many blessed ways. There is the first time the Holy Spirit descends the way that He did upon His people. There is the first sermon that is preached after Jesus' resurrection and ascension. And in this sermon, there is the first time that we see a mass conversion and even mass baptisms. It was in response, of course, to to that first moment where so many people had been given that gift to speak in tongues. Never in the history of God's people, a people all of a sudden speak in a different tongue immediately, all of a sudden. It, It was the inverse of that first in the times of Genesis where, where the people started speaking in different tongues because they, they could not, um, God, God was making them not be able to construct the Tower of Babel and they did speak in tongues but it caused their division at that time. And now we find this people speaking in tongues and yet it's what unite and brings together. See, it was an undoing of what God did with the Tower of Babel. The speaking in tongues of Peter, he still understood John, and John understood Matthew, and all the peoples that were from their different tongues. They were understanding the one message of the gospel. It was the first time that there was this miracle of speaking in tongues while still understanding their own and understanding that of the others. It united, it brought them together. 
Now in this chapter, chapter 3, we have the first miracle operated by the apostles. Um, It is the miracle of this man who is lame being healed completely. There are 14 miracles recorded in all of Acts. This is the very first one operated by the apostles. As I say, of course, the giving of tongues. There was a miracle where they were speaking in tongues. But this is the first one where they are operating, being used of God for a miracle to happen. But it's also the first Jewish negative reaction to the proclamation of Christ. It'll, it'll come following the sermon. There will be those who repent and believe, but there will be so many who are against that it will become also the first arrest of the apostles. And it is the first time John is mentioned in the book of Acts. But returning to the miracle itself, when we think of this man, there's a first for him as well in what's happening because this is the first day after some 40 years of his life that he can now walk. And the normal in terms of walking is around one year of age. Eight months, 12 months, 14 months, we walk. This man has not walked for around 40 years. So this is the first day this man walks. And then there's an element too that is of course um, part of, of the reality. This is the first day in the life of this man that he is able to enter beyond gate beautiful toward the temple. Because if you remember um, there are commands in God's word Leviticus 21 that would forbid anyone with a kind of, of difficulty as this man had to enter the temple. And it was, it was communicating a sermon to the peoples of the purity and how God needs perfection and, and how He is through the work of Christ doing exactly that in the hearts of those who believe and made, making us fit for heaven where we will all be perfect and there will be no ailments and no illnesses there. Well, this man was healed this day And we read of how he went toward the temple and all the people in there acknowledged who he was. They all knew that he always stood outside, but now he's able and welcome to come inside. Well, in chapter 2, verse 43, you'll remember that, that it said something of a general consensus of the people. It said, And fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done by the apostles. And and now, John... uh, Luke, he records one of these wonders and one of these signs. And then also we had read in verse 47 of chapter 2 something of a general consensus that the very last phrase said, um, well, the beginning, praising God and having favor with all the people. Now, Luke wants to give a good complete view of what was going on. This is the thing about communication. We can't say everything in one breath of all that is happening. And it's the same in terms of writing. 
Luke did express that there was a great joy and the church had a togetherness and there was this general fear of the Lord and honor. Even the people outside were showing a certain appreciation about the church. But Luke wants to give a full scenario. And it's not everyone who is excited about the church. There are those who are displeased. And and we will see this soon following the sermon that Peter preaches He will be arrested this time. There will still be mass conversions. There will be many who who believe around 2,000 because the number 3,000 goes to 5,000 at the end of his sermon. But he does end up in jail with John. And so it's the first in that way too of seeing this effect. And, And this is what Luke is doing. He's giving this full picture. Many are favorable, but not everybody. And there are signs being shown, and we're going to see one of them today. Now, another thing that, that is important to note right at the beginning is this, this first point of persevering in prayer. Remember that in the list in chapter 2, as Luke describes the activities of the church, and you'll remember that in a couple sermons we looked at the identity of the church and the activity. And we saw here in Luke 2, chapter 43, verse 43 and 47, give five things that the church was active in that they were steadfastly um, giving themselves to, continued steadfastly. Remember, we said that, that, that two words in English are needed to describe one word in Greek, which would be the idea of persevering. They were devoted to these five things. It was attendance at the apostles' doctrine, fellowship with one another, even breaking of bread from house to house, prayer and then praises to God. And, and I just want in this first point to bring in two, five minutes the reality of how central prayer is to the life of the church. And it's important, beloved, that, that you and myself, we would be aligning our lives in the spiritual reality of how we live. If you confess to be a Christian, God's word is what describes what you are supposed to be given to, what you are supposed to be persevering in. And then compare scripture with your life and and consider, is that what I'm doing? Take prayer then. Am I continuing steadfastly in prayer? Verse 46, am I continuing daily with one accord in prayer? The narrative of Acts begins where the church is described in terms of numbers and then it says their activity. Acts 1.14 It says that with one accord in prayer and supplication. It had mentioned the apostles. And then it says with the women and Mary the mother of Jesus and with his brethren. Acts 1.14 They were with one accord in prayer and supplication. Now, the important thing here is not just that they were individually praying, but they were praying corporately. And this is emphasized um, throughout the text. We we already saw in chapter 2, Luke lists the activity of the church. They are steadfastly continuing in, and it says prayer. Um, Again, not individual, but corporate If you go to chapter 3, we see this sermon, and what are they doing? Not the sermon, uh, the miracle itself. 
Verse 1 we read, Now Peter and John went up together into the temple at the hour of prayer. This was the ninth hour. It was around 3 p.m. Well, it is 3 p.m., the hour of prayer. That was along the time of the evening sacrifice. There was known in the spirituality of Jewish life to be the morning prayer, the noon prayer, and then the afternoon prayer. But these mornings and afternoons were the ones connected with the morning offering and the evening offering. So as the offerings were being made in the temple, often many times people who could, they would go to the temple for that hour of prayer. That's what Peter and John are doing. And then Peter and John will go to jail after they are released from from their um, arrest in chapter 4. We have a precious and beautiful prayer. They unite with the church and they pray. That is the prayer after which the earth trembles. And then um, we go to Acts 12 and we have Peter when he's delivered because he goes back to jail and when he's delivered remember he goes to Mark's house and they're all praying in there you can imagine how clearly Peter is one of the prayer requests because he's in jail James was already killed by Herod they are fearing for Peter's life you can you can be certain they were praying for Peter and he arrives at the very door and and so on see prayer It's a central activity of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And not only individual prayer, but corporate prayer. So beloved, as as a church, we, we need to foster this, opportunities for prayer. And we need to be active in this, even individually. If, if you have never come to one of our monthly prayer services... I want to challenge you to understand that if you were to come, I do not believe that once a month corporate prayer in and of itself can already say that you are now continuing steadfastly, continuing daily. You you see the, the, the challenge that I want you to see, beloved? Even if you were to come once a month, that is still not really such a persevering in prayer to the fact that the effect that our, our hearts should beat with an earnest I need to pray more I need to find other believers to pray with and so may the Lord use us and challenge us to be a church that prays corporately secondly giving what you have and so here was Peter and John it's the hour of prayer that w- this is this is why I put in the element of prayer. This, they're going to the temple at this hour. It is an hour of prayer. It is in their hearts to pray. And in, in going to pray, they meet this man. There are many gates to the temple. They are coming through the gate called Beautiful. Um, some believe that this, this is the gate um, that had Corinthian bronze Um, Josephus says something about this gate. He describes the gate of Corinthian bronze as being a gate that was so intricate and elaborate and so full of exquisite workmanship that he says, quote, it far exceeded in value those gates that were plated with silver and set in gold. So if this is the gate, it it was beautiful indeed, and that was one of the entrances that led, led to the court of the women and of the Gentiles. 
And daily, it says in the text, the friends of this lame man would take him there. That was, in essence, his, his only employment, to beg for alms. He was lame from his birth, and he had friends who would take them there. And, and very pragmatic in a good way, they would put him there when a lot of people went by there, maybe in the morning and in the afternoon. We don't know, but this is the afternoon, and there he is to seek for alms from people who would have a generous heart to give him of his support. If you were poor in those days, but you could work and labor, you would go to the fields and you would glean on the corners and you would glean after the reapers. The reapers were not allowed to get everything that was on the vines or, or on the fields. They had to leave a little bit behind. And they had to leave the corners without gleaning, without reaping whatsoever. That was, that was the biblical Old Testament welfare system for someone who is poor. But this lame man could not do that. We, we all can understand this. If you were blind, if you were lame, if you could not walk about, so people had to show their love to him. And alms played, played a part in even the worship of God. People that went to worship God already knew they would meet with people who needed, and that's where they would already show their love to the Lord. And there's even elements of this in, in how we worship the Lord. When we give our offerings, there, there are funds that are set aside for people who need the benevolent fund. So when we're giving our offerings, we, we are showing that kind of heart. But now you, you and I have gone places where you see people who seem very destitute and needy. And then our hearts tug in us and we want to show a way of love to that person. Well, he asked for an alms and Peter and John had no silver and no gold. They, they say that, that well-known phrase. They, they tell him that they don't have what he wants. Silver and gold have I none. But, but then he tells them they have something else. And it's something better. It's something they do have. So they say, but such as I have, give I thee. So this is why I mean giving what you have. You might not have money. But if you're a believer, you have something that is better than money. And even when you do have some money and you give some of that to a charity, to someone in need, to, to a benevolent fund, you need to understand that that should not be the fullness of your worship. You should always have in your heart to give Christ, to give the knowledge of Christ, to give the message of Christ. Every believer should have a heartbeat to make Christ known. And this is what Peter and John do. If, if you were to directly ask, well, what is it that Peter is giving? You could say, well, he's giving this man healing because this is what he does. He says, um, but such as I have, I give thee in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. So number one, he's definitely giving healing to this man. He's giving him, of course, hope. He's giving this man happiness. We see him truly happy in the text. We see him leaping and praising God and walking. He couldn't just contain himself in walking. He understood that he could also leap, and so he did. He gave him healing and hope and happiness. He gave him, as we saw, access into the temple that he didn't have other, uh, before this. 
He gave them, of course, dignity. Um, All of us know that there's something very humiliating in having to beg. Imagine, beloved, for an instant, if it truly happened, God forbid, that you lost everything completely and even the ability and hard times hit the whole congregation because there's, there's a war or there's some kind of ailment of another sort or a famine of many years and everyone is in a state of destitute. And even though there may be some, some monies coming from churches elsewhere that, that have an ability and they're sending it to the brothers and sisters who are in need, that money goes around, but there's still one or another who, who needs to beg. You would know what this humiliation means. You would know the difficulty you would know the hardship this is the life of this man for 40 years now let's look there there are two truths about the whole reality of miracle what happens to this man is he receives a miracle let me let me read of it first and he and so so peter told him in the name of jesus christ of nazareth rise up and walk and he took him by the right hand and lifted him up and immediately his feet and ankle bones received strength now here we have a miracle this is what this is. This is a miracle. Let's look at two things about this miracle. The precious thing, even though these miracles are not habitually happening, the power for which it served in those days is still serves today. Power, I mentioned, right? Well, there's a double power right here. One of them is the miracle itself. This man could not walk. It said that in, in verse 7, it says that his feet and ankle bones received strength. And so the only thing we know about this lame man is that he had feet and ankles that had no strength. The bones themselves. It wasn't something on the skin. It wasn't even on the muscle. It was the bone itself. So to the very foundation of the feet and ankle of this man, he was impaired. So we could say this is what happens. This is the power of this miracle. In an instant, his bones became able to move properly. His muscles, tendons, and nerves all worked together in harmony. He certainly would have had a muscle atrophy, and it was completely reversed. Whatever had provoked the paralysis to begin with was healed. And for a man to stand who has not been walking all his life, his balance was established and was made perfect. His sense of motion was normalized and made possible, even to jump and even to to leap. He required no surgery. He required no treatment, no physical therapy. He simply began to walk, to leap, And to praise the Lord. Now there's power. That's the power in the miracle itself. I said it was a double power. Because there's power in the reality that this is a testimony of Christ. This is the power, you could say, behind the power. The power of the miracle is what I just spoke of. But there's a power behind that power. And this is why I read from John where the Lord Jesus saw another lame man who also his whole life was there, could never enter the, 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 the waters of Bethesda. And the Lord Jesus said, stand up and walk. 
And the same thing happened to that man. And, and this is not, beloved, coincidence. This is, this is not just, just another miracle. There's something very emphatic here that this is the very first miracle. It's, it's so much like a parallel of the miracle of the Lord Jesus Christ because this is testifying that Jesus is still working. Some of us might read this in a very fast way with a, with a childlike heart and we're just kind of forgetting that it's Acts. We're thinking it is John or Matthew and thinking we'll hear the name of Jesus in the next page. That's clearly the sense that we are supposed to have. Look at the apostles. Um, who do they learn to show love to the needy with? Jesus. Where do they get this power to heal? It's from Jesus. And they're proclaiming soon after this the kingdom of God. And who do they learn that with? With Jesus. So it's, 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 it's a testimony that Jesus is alive. He is not there in person, but He is there in spirit. He is there through the Holy Spirit. And he is in heaven on a throne. He's the one healing this man. Just as he was on earth healing the man on the pool of Bethesda, he is now healing this man by the gate called Beautiful. The only difference is he's using his disciples now to do the talking. But it's Jesus. That's the power in this miracle. And to see the divine element behind this, it's anybody who really read the Bible a lot, and it would have been almost basically everybody there, whoever's there by the temple, certainly were the most spiritual people in Israel. And they were having Isaiah 35, 5 through 6, being fulfilled in their very sight. Look at Isaiah 35, 5. Then the eyes of the blind shall be open, and the ears of the deaf shall be unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap as a heart, and the tongue of the dumb sing. For in the wilderness shall waters break out, and streams in the desert. I, I can imagine someone there must have thought, that's a lame man leaping. That is Isaiah 35, 6 being played out. God is among us. And they understood that was connected to the Messiah who would do those miracles. And it was for them to realize the Messiah has been among us. So you, you can imagine how they were attuned to whatever Peter would preach in explaining what was happening. And, and this is what Peter will say. It was the Messiah. It's Christ. Trust in Him. Now, this was the first thing that we wanted to talk about the miracle, this power. But there's a second thing, and the second thing has, has at least four elements to it. The second thing is the blessing of the miracle. But not just this miracle, every miracle. And since this is the first miracle we're looking at in the book of Acts, let's look at these four blessings that, that every miracle has. Even the miracle, of course, of the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, be, the reason I do this is because the, the tendency in our humanity is to think, oh, it's just sad that these things don't happen anymore. I wish so bad we had this strength. Imagine how many people would gravitate to hear God's word and come to church if certain men or women would, would have this kind of healing power. Why does God not bring this back? Well, he doesn't have to. The power in miracles and the blessings in miracles are still with us today. 
And let these four truths encourage you. The first is this, that miracles were signs of the coming of the kingdom of God. This is why I read Isaiah 35.5. That, that, that passage was saying, when these miracles happen, know that the Messiah has come, the kingdom has come. And see, with Jesus having come and done all those miracles, that was the king here on earth. And so, even though those miracles cannot be repeated by any single person who has that gift in and of themselves, remember always this, we do believe in miracles. God can heal someone, can give even sight to the blind, because the same God still has the same power, but He does not use specific people who would have that power and say, stand up, hold my hand, and I will make you walk in the name of Jesus Christ. We we don't have that gift. That was the gift of healing. That was for a season. Even in the days of the early church, they had to realize that that was going away. We hear Paul saying, I had to leave Trophimus behind because he was sick. Now Paul had resurrected people, but now he can't heal Trophimus. So see, even the church in those days had to struggle with the reality. Healing and miracles are not like like a stalemate of the gospel. It's not like prayer and praises that we give ourselves to and will never end and can never end. They're only for a season. But, But what was the purpose for it? Well, number one, it was a sign of the coming of the kingdom. And see, this is what's so wonderful. We have those miracles that happen, and they are communicating to your heart and mind. So the king has come. The kingdom that was at hand is now here. Christ is on the throne, and everyone who believes in him is now a citizen of the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. That, that is what miracles are, are proclaiming. So, so it, it's good that these miracles came. Even though it was 2,000 years ago, it doesn't matter. It, it's still a message that is for today. The kingdom is here. Secondly, miracles were pictures of what is to come in the future for everyone who is part of the kingdom. So when we see the ones who were blind seeing and some who were dead made alive and some who were lame being able to walk, God was communicating there is a day in which there will be a place where not a single soul has a sickness or an ailment or certainly the worst problem of all, which is sin. And so here we are. Miracles came in the past and heaven is in the future. And for some of us, they are in heaven already. There are believers there. They are already being blessed with this reality of what miracles promised. And if you're alive here between those miracles in heaven, this is a promise to you. If you believe in Jesus, one day your body will receive this miracle. And you will no longer get sick. And you will never die. See, every miracle is an encouragement to you and me. If you believe in Christ, and see, this is why you must believe in Christ, this, this miracle where your sickness, sickness will also go away and you will never see death and tears will be wiped and you will be in heaven, that will only happen to you if you are in Christ in a new creation. 
So miracles are speaking that to you and me. It's an encouragement for us. It's, it's like the reality. I, I've never had a miracle happen to my life. Maybe I've had a sickness and it's not going to go away. But in heaven it will. In heaven we will have no arthritis. In heaven we will have no cancer. In heaven we will have no diabetes. In heaven there will be absolutely no human bodily discomforts or sadnesses. Because in heaven there will be no sin. So every miracle is encouraging you and me to remember that. That's the second thing. And the third um, blessing about miracles is that miracles were also pictures of salvation. So they're not only reminding us that the kingdom has come, they're a picture of how it will be in heaven. They're also a picture of salvation. And that is an encouragement too. Because you look at every miracle and it's teaching you something about salvation. Maybe you still need to be saved. And miracles are showing you what it is to be saved. And it might even lead you to understand that through Christ you can be saved. Look at this man. He was told to do something he could not do, and yet he did it. And you would ask, how? How in the world could a man who couldn't walk, walked? And somewhere between the command walk and his walking, there was, of course, the supernatural power of God giving faith to that man so that he would dare try to do what he had never done his whole life. But isn't this a beautiful emblem of salvation? Beloved, I am conscious that every time I say from this pulpit, you must believe and repent. I am conscious that if you are unsaved, you are utterly incapable of doing exactly what I have commanded. And yet the command goes forth still. See, look at that man. He could have looked at Peter and said, Peter, I can't. That's even why I'm here. I'm a beggar because I cannot walk. Beloved, we do not hear this in the text. That would have been an excuse. He could have given it. That would have been his lack of faith. And maybe he wouldn't have been healed. If it weren't God's will to heal him, he wouldn't have been healed. Remember where Jesus says that he didn't do many miracles in certain places because they did not believe. This man was healed because of faith. You will only be saved if there is faith. This man could not walk. You cannot be saved. You cannot save yourself. But when those people asked in the sermon just a little bit ago, what must we do? They are pricked in their hearts. They've acknowledged now we killed the Messiah. The, the Messiah we've been waiting for, praying for, pleading for, we have killed on the cross. Peter, what must we do? And Peter says, repent. They can't do it. Peter says, save yourselves from this untoward generation. They can't do that either. He commands them to do what they can't do. He sees a man who can't walk his whole life. He says, walk. See, that's an emblem of salvation. Your duty, beloved, is not to look at Peter and say, I can't walk. Don't look at the preacher and say, preacher, I can't repent. 
When you do that, you are just saying, I have no faith. You don't dare tell God that it is your sin. You don't say, my sin is a justification for me not to be a believer, to be saved. That's what it means to say, I can't believe to God. You are are literally saying, my sin justifies the state of staying in sin. Now that's what would have been for this man to say, Paul, you're telling me to walk. I cannot walk. My state of not being able to walk is an excuse to not obey your summons, Peter, to walk. But see, this man believed. He believed that if he gave his right hand to this man called Peter, who told him he had no silver nor gold, but he will believe because he said it was in the name of Christ. And possibly, we, we don't know everything this man knew, but he's in Jerusalem at the temple. Very likely he knew that whatever came from Jesus' lips, he could trust. Even if it came from the lips of a servant of Jesus. So he dares give his hands. And he tries to have his brain communicate to his feet to stand. And to his utter astonishment, he is a walking man. Beloved, that that is a parallel of conversion. You cannot repent and you cannot believe. But you must go to God to give it to you. Now, what I can suggest is what Augustine says. You see, you, you hear people who say, well, I can't believe it must be given. Augustine didn't use that excuse. And he... He amazingly understood the reality that as an unbeliever, he couldn't save himself. And he's the one who said that, and it went into record in his confessions. He says, Lord, command what you will. And command the faith. I cannot believe but you can command. You, you can give me that which I cannot give to myself. He didn't just excuse it and said, I can't do it. He said, Lord, give what I can't do. Please do it. See, the miracles are a picture of salvation. There's this tension. You cannot go away from it. He told a man who couldn't walk to walk. In preaching the gospel, we tell souls that are dead in sins to be alive, to repent, to turn to Jesus, to save yourselves from this untoward generation. The reality is you can't, but you look to the one who can give it to you. You hold his hand as it were. And you stand by faith, trusting that it's all of Him who works and who wills. Miracles are signs of the coming of the kingdom. Miracles are pictures of what is to come. Miracles are pictures of salvation. And now we could also say, fourthly and lastly, that the greater miracle um, still happens See, we're looking at all ways in which miracle can be a blessing to you. The greater miracle still happens. 
if you look at all of those miracles, not only were they all these things I said, a, a picture of salvation, a picture of heaven, and, and showing that the kingdom has already come, but there was this reality and dynamic in the miracles. At least we have proof of certain miracles that we know this for sure, that Jesus was not just bringing a healing to the body, but also a salvation to the soul. There were people to whom Jesus literally said, your faith has made you whole. And we find this with, with this man must be true as, as he becomes an emblem to the sermon. He's one who is praising God. He must have also believed in the Christ whose power healed him. And beloved, this is what I want to encourage you with is if you're a Christian today, this miracle has happened to your life. The miracle of walking is not as great as the miracle of having a new heart. So not only were the miracles an emblem of salvation, many of the people whose body received the miracle, I'm I'm saying it in a general way because I don't don't want to say that every single person who had a miracle was saved. We, We don't have that proof, but it's possible. And we know some to whom that is clearly the truth. But you would agree with me that... If Lazarus, for example, had resurrected from the grave but remained unsaved, his second death would have been quite a horrific thing. And you would think, why the first resurrection anyway? But Lazarus was a believer. And he had reason to believe then, the death, when it comes again to me, has no power. I'll go to heaven. And this is what I mean, beloved. If you know the Lord Jesus, you have a new heart. You are regenerated. You have a greater miracle than this man who received the healing of his limbs. Someone may be with great illness, but if he's a true believer, he has the greatest miracle already in his favor. So that what I mean, that's what I mean by the greater miracle still happens. That that's still an occurrence. Every single believer has this best miracle. You were dead in your sins. Jesus resurrected you to a newness of life. It's even the miracle of resurrection. There was deadness. Now there is life. There was lostness. Now you were found. You, you were blind. You did not see aright. Now you do see Christ. You could not speak the things of God, but now you have lips that do speak of Christ and your joy in Him. Now, thirdly and lastly, Christ and compassion. Why why do I bring this together? Because I I want to submit to you the reality that this is, if, if not the best, it's certainly a major biblical method of evangelism where Christ and compassion are completely hand-to-hand, side-by-side. You could say, of course, um, that, that we should put it in this order, Christ and compassion. You could say, well, he, 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 he first healed this man and later he preached Christ. Peter is inversing, as it were. He's, he's showing compassion, then he brings Christ. Not really. We really would have to argue that Christ is first because look what he says. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. He puts Christ before the compassion. Peter wants to make very clear that it's, it's not even he doing himself doing some kind of compassion. It is Christ. 
It is Christ who's here showing compassion to this man who is needy. Christ is the one who called Peter and John to begin with. Christ is the one who put the gospel message in their hearts. Christ is the one who modeled compassion to them so that they would think, okay, here we are going to pray. We belong to Jesus. There's a layman. What would Jesus have done? He probably would have healed that very man. Let's go there, John. You see, they're, they're just doing what they learned with Jesus. Christ put, of course, that man in their way. It was in God's sovereignty. It is Christ who gave Peter the power to heal. And then Christ was proclaimed in the healing. Christ was believed by this man. You notice this reality. For this man to then give the hand to Peter, he's thinking, I believe in the Christ whose name you are invoking. He's not saying like those evil spirits, Christ I know, Paul I know, but you, who are you? No, he's, he's saying, Maybe I don't know Peter, but I know Christ. But I will trust the Christ you are invoking. It's not 50% Christ and 50% compassion. It is 100% Christ. And it's 100% compassion because Christ is 100% compassionate. And beloved, in, in, in closing these two points that I have in, our, in, in point three, Christ and compassion, I just want to challenge you you dear believer to understand this begin a ministry of compassion with Christ first and you can prepare to see his hand working and souls being saved pour the love of Christ into souls and you will see Christ working in those souls Christ and compassion. Let us think, beloved, as a congregation, how can we serve the lost among us, round about us, and let us communicate the love of Christ to them as we serve them. And first and foremost, let them know where that love comes from. It's not us. It's Christ in us. And then secondly and lastly, one of the most simple and clear ways to express what Christianity is <clears throat> who the Christian is or who, who the Christian is supposed to be is this reality that, that we find in what Peter tells this man, silver and gold have I none, but such as I have I give thee. He gives. Christianity is a religion of giving. The believer is one who gives. And when I say this, beloved, I mean all round, beginning with giving to God. Who are we? We are men and women who give God worship, who give Him of our time. Think of what's happening, beloved. Here we are. This is a day in our calendar, and we have given of our day and of our time twice to worship this God. We are giving to Him. And in worship, we give our praise and we give our attention and we give our offerings. And, and we are giving, of course, out of every giving that He has given to us. And we give our obedience to His law and we want to live in His ways. All because He has given to us. Primarily what? The unspeakable gift of the Lord Jesus Christ. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son 
No wonder we are a people who give. We belong to a God who has given. He's given His only begotten Son. And as we find ourselves giving worship to God, but finding a world round about us, and needy people even among us, what do we do? We give. We give Christ. And as we give Christ, the world sees the compassion of Christ. And they learn even what the church is. And just putting together with that whole theme of what the church is. See, this is the beauty of the church. Is when we are in this world shedding forth or showing forth or the, the word I'm thinking is reflecting forth the very beauty of Christ. The very holiness of God. The very compassionate of Jesus. Compassion of Jesus. And I just end with this one quote of, of Dr. Newton. Speaking of the moon and its beauty, he said, The moon is a great river, a great, great giver, excuse me. And she owes all her beauty to this habit of giving. Suppose the moon should swallow up and keep to itself all the rays of light which the sun gives it, and should refuse to give them to us. What would be the effect? it would stop shining. And the moment it would stop shining, it would lose all its beauty. All the beauty of the brilliancy of the diamond is owing to its reflecting or giving away the light which it receives from the sun. And this is the way with the moon. If it should stop shining or giving away the light it gets from the sun, it would hang up in the sky a great, ugly-looking ball. All its brightness and beauty would be gone. The beauty of the moon is that it gives. And it gives what is not his or hers because it gives the beams of light it receives from the sun. All the beauty of the church, beloved, is what we give. But not what we have in ourselves, but it is of what we receive from God. Even the Lord Jesus Christ so that we may go to people and say, Silver and gold have I none, but such as I have, give I thee. In the name of Jesus Christ. And we can say, Hear who he is. He's a savior of sinners. And how did he save sinners? He gave his own life on the tree. And then you can tell this person you're ministering to, is there any way that I can give to you? Can I care for you? Can I love you? While I tell you about who Jesus is, I will also show him what he does. Because he gave himself. And then we give ourselves to one another. Amen. Let us pray. Our gracious, glorious God, we thank Thee, Lord, for giving us so much, not, not only one or two things, Lord, Thou hast given us this whole world. Thou hast given us our lives. Thou hast given us our families. Thou hast given us Thy Word. And in Thy Word we see prophets we see a law. We see, Lord, commandments. 
But first and foremost, Lord, we see the Lord Jesus Christ promise at the very heels of sin, when sin entered the world, the promise of the seed of the woman was already given. Lord, so we thank Thee for having given us Christ, not only promised, but given Him. And we thank Thee, Lord Jesus, that Thou didst come to this world and in coming gave us Thy very life. Thy very blood was shed in behalf of Thy people. Lord, we pray, make us a giving people ourselves. Not that we would merit anything by giving, but as our gratitude, Lord, for all that Thou hast given to us. We thank Thee, Lord, for healing this man, and we thank Thee for that miracle that still communicates to us. We thank Thee, Lord, that the King has come. We look forward to the days, Lord, where we will be fully healed and made perfect in heaven. We thank Thee, Lord, for so many emblems of salvation in all the miracles that are in God's Word. We thank Thee, Lord, that the greatest miracle of all has happened to the souls of many. But, Lord, those who are still in their sins, we plead. Bring this miracle even to them that they would rise from the grave of unbelief, that they who are dead in their sins would be made alive in Christ. Lord, the same faith given for that man to walk who couldn't, give it, Lord, to the soul who must believe but can't. Lord, we trust in thy power and in thy grace. Do, the Lord, this work for thine honor and glory. For we ask in Jesus' name, amen. Amen.